Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. It will be a UN General Assembly like no other. Typically, this is the time of year when world leaders gather in New York to deliver speeches at the United Nations and participate in all manner of diplomatic events. But this year, UNGA, as it is known, has gone virtual. UNGA Week is always a highlight of the diplomatic calendar, though, of course, it will look much different this year which also marks the 75th anniversary of the United Nations. A great number of heads of state and world leaders are delivering videotape messages, with the exception, that is, of Donald Trump, who has said he would like to deliver his address in person. On the line with me to preview some of the storylines for this most unusual UNGA is Richard Gowan, the UN Director of the International Crisis Group. So this is the fifth year that Richard and I have done an UNGA preview episode. And though everything is a bit unusual this year, I think you'll still drive a lot of value from this conversation, whether you are a UN watcher or a more casual observer of international affairs. And I do want to note that I will have another episode coming soon focused more directly on the UN's 75th anniversary and the broader implications of that inflection point for multilateralism today. As always, if you are new to the podcast, please subscribe wherever you can subscribe. And now the podcast is available on Amazon Music. The podcast is one of the first podcasts that's being available as Amazon Music rolls out its new podcast platform. So subscribe there or wherever you access your podcasts. All right. Now, here is my conversation with Richard Gowan, UN Director of the International Crisis Group. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Now, one interesting wrinkle about UNGA going virtual this year is that the number of heads of state who are slated to give an address, albeit by video, is is greater than any that I'd seen in the past. You know, typically the uh, heads of state of China and Russia, you know, don't 
come to New York during UNGA, but now they'll all be addressing the world all within sort of hours of each other on the first day of the general debate on Tuesday, uh, which will kick off as it typically does with an address by the Brazilian, well, first an address by the Secretary General, and then uh, an address by the Brazilian president, followed by the U.S. president. And the U.S. president this year will be the only head of state appearing in person. Uh, this all kind of drives to what I think will be a rather interesting dynamic of having a number of very high profile heads of state addressing the General Assembly all within really just like an hour or two of each other. Yes, I think you're going to have four of the five P5 leaders speaking on the first morning of the high level debate. Uh, Trump, Xi from China, Putin from Russia, and then also uh, Macron from France. Boris Johnson, I think, comes a bit later. And this will focus, I think, international attention on the UN, uh, albeit briefly. Uh, Obviously, most uh, media will be watching what Trump has to say. And this is an important moment for Trump, uh, really in terms of his domestic election campaign, because he can use it, I think, to speak to the world, but also to American voters about uh, how he has been putting America first in the world. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that. But what's interesting is that quite soon afterwards, you'll have videos from from Xi, you'll have videos from Putin. And my suspicion is that everyone will be watching uh, President Xi's video particularly carefully. Because what we've seen over the last year, and during the COVID crisis in particular, has been a real falling out between China and the US in the UN system, and most obviously over the World Health Organization. So although the Chinese leader isn't in New York in person, this is still a chance for him to make a pitch about why Beijing is now a natural leader at at the UN. Mm And it's interesting, you saw this juxtaposition of the U.S. representative, in this case, it was Alex Azar, the Health and Human Services Secretary, deliver a caustic and bombastic speech at an international forum. And in this, I'm referring to the May uh, World Health Assembly, followed uh, by Xi, who gave like a very conciliatory and uh, seemingly sort of big hearted speech about how, you know, China was working with the rest of the world to control COVID. It was this kind of stunning juxtaposition uh, that you saw in May at the World Health Assembly um, on display. And now I just have to imagine that you're going to see that same juxtaposition, but amplified even more because you all have President Trump deliver his address, followed just you know by uh, an hour later by by President Xi. And in President Trump's address, you know we can likely expect him, as you said, to use this as an opportunity to score domestic political points and heighten his antagonisms with China, while also simultaneously, I would expect him to once again try to divert blame for the impact of coronavirus in the United States on the World uh, Health Organization, uh, which I think would be matched presumably by uh, remarks from Xi seeking to embrace the WHO and sort of try to assert China as a global leader. Yes. And I mean, I think it, it plays well for the Chinese simply to look calm. And as you say, 
look conciliatory uh, in these forums because, you know, that creates an obvious contrast with Trump's behavior. I mean, one thing that's actually interesting looking at Trump's appearances at the General Assembly to date is that each time he's come here, he's got a bit more critical of China. If you go back to 2017, when the focus was very much on the crisis around North Korea, um, there was almost no criticism of, of China at all in the president's speech. I think he made a passing reference to sovereignty issues in the South China Sea, but that was largely largely it. Um, by last year, Trump was already being enormously critical of um, China and especially China's uh, economic and trade policies. And I, I think we'll see him amp up that criticism once again uh, in, in this sort of strange virtual General Assembly forum. And that is primarily aimed, uh, as you say, at a domestic audience. And I think one one thing to say about Trump and to keep in mind when we, we watch Trump is that he's always understood that his UN speeches um, are meant to resonate at home as well as with other leaders. Uh, he's he's pretty smart, actually, about including pithy one-liners in his General Assembly addresses that are clearly meant to play well on cable news in the US or as little videos on Twitter. Uh, he'll be throwing out a lot, I think, of, of zingers um, uh, this time around because he, he needs them to appear on US domestic news. Yeah, Little Rocket Man was a uh, consequence of his first speech to the UN General Assembly. Um, one sort of interesting um, thing to note, I think, about Trump and the UN is that, you know, while, yes, he has been critical of China and in that first General Assembly speech of, you know, you know basically threatened nuclear war with uh, North Korea, you know, his approach and attitude and disposition towards the United Nations itself was not hostile. Um, you know, he seemed at least to enjoy the kind of pomp and circumstance around the UN General Assembly. This year, though, without that pomp and circumstance, because everything has gone virtual, and also because he is using uh, the WHO as a scapegoat uh, for his own, you know, tragically incompetent handling of the coronavirus. Uh, here in the United States, you know, I, I fear that we might see increasingly hostile rhetoric directed towards the UN itself. I think that's probably true. And I think one other reason you might see that sort of hostility is that the US has fallen out pretty badly, even with its European allies over Iran at the UN. The, I was leading you there, Richard. Yeah, you were leading me there <laughs> in the last couple of, of months. And that's something we're yeah. Uh, I've been working on a lot with Crisis Group. But, um, you know, the US has tried to reimpose uh, sanctions on Iran that were uh, terminated as part of the 2015 nuclear deal negotiated by the Obama administration. Actually, on the 20th of August, the US tried to set in train a process called snapback, which is a process that is meant to lead to the reimposition of uh, these former sanctions uh, this very weekend um, on the 20th of September. Now, the Chinese have opposed this, the Russians have opposed it, but actually so have the UK, the French and the Germans. They have said that the US, which pulled out of the Iranian nuclear deal in 2018, just doesn't have a, the standing 
to initiate snapback. Basically because snapback is something, a a process that was negotiated as part of the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, since the U.S. has declared itself not a part of that deal anymore. It no longer has the ability to, um, to, to provoke those snapback provisions. That's basically the standing of the rest of the world, whereas the U.S. disagrees. It says, no, we, we can still actually impose that snapback. Yeah, and the legal issues and debates around this are insanely complex. Mm-hmm. Um, Trump is not going to focus on those complex details, though. I think that one theme in his speech uh, this coming week will be that uh, the U.S. has um, succeeded. He will claim the U.S. has succeeded in reimposing U.N. sanctions on Iran. And I think he will call out um, uh, other powers for not supporting that process. He will accuse other powers of um, palling around with terrorists. I'm sure he'll have some uh, pretty nifty phrases ready for for that part of his speech um and this will be a uh i think a very contentious passage in whatever he has to say some diplomats in new york worry that just as he uh terminated funding to the who over covid earlier this year trump could threaten to cut off some funds to the un um because he's dissatisfied over the iranian issue i i'm not quite so worried about this uh, Trump has kept on saying that he actually wants to do a deal with the Iranians, just not the Obama deal. Um, he's coming off the back of a bit of a foreign policy success with the normalization of relations between Israel, uh, the UAE, and also Bahrain. So I think he'll have tough words on um, on Iran, but I, I don't think he's actually going to pull the entire house down because ultimately you know, the message he wants to project at home is that he's a dealmaker who um, is scoring successes, uh, not just a sort of an, an angry infant um, shouting at the grown-ups in New York. That's interesting. That, that's good to hear from you because there is this potential that um, you know this could provoke a really serious uh, crisis at the Security Council, maybe the most serious kind of dispute at the Security Council between the United States and other key members since you know, the 2003 Iraq war, um, which, you know, most of the Security Council, with the exception of the U.S. and the U.K., uh, opposed. Um, but here you have the U.S. kind of alone at the Security Council insisting that Iran sanctions that are U.N. sanctions, world sanctions, be reimposed. Uh, but the rest of the world saying no. Yeah, and U.S. diplomats uh over the last couple of months, have been uh, you know, talking pretty robustly with uh, their counterparts here in New York, saying that they are risking a major crisis in the Security Council and one that could damage the Council's credibility. I think, though, for Trump, and again, I may be proved wrong, but I think for Trump, uh, this is an issue that he will... They want some strong one-liners about. Um, he will want to say that he's being tough on uh, Tehran. But it is inordinately complex, as we've just been discussing. And I don't think that the average American voter is especially interested in the finer points of um, UN sanctions policy. I think that the claim that the WHO 
sold out to China over COVID-19 is something that resonates much more domestically. Um, it puts China in the spotlight as a villain. And I think that's a narrative which Trump is going to emphasize more um, because it's it's simply an easier one to uh, explain and also to sell, um, you know, especially at a time where pretty much all sides of American public opinion um, are pretty negative towards China. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious to learn from you, what sort of do you think is lost by the fact that UNGA is mostly virtual this year, that, you know, diplomats, you know, even lower level diplomats won't have the opportunity to kind of rub elbows. You know, uh, UNGA is sometimes referred to as diplomatic speed dating. You have any number of bilateral meetings and, and other side events uh, that just aren't happening this year um, because of the, of the pandemic. I mean, what consequence does that have for, do you think that will um, impose on, on sort of diplomacy more broadly? I mean, this is like an important week in the diplomatic calendar and it's, it's just not happening. Yeah. And I think that it is a bit of a blow um, to the UN. You mentioned at the start that a lot of heads of state and government will be sending in recorded speeches. And by that metric, the General Assembly looks as important as ever. But the reality is that the speeches, other than than those from the US and China, sometimes Russia, uh, are not really what the General Assembly is about. Um, what it really is useful for is as a space where uh, leaders can have conversations in the margins with other political figures who they don't normally meet. Um, You know, a huge amount of business goes on uh, bilaterally um, in the missions around the UN. And I think that for most most diplomats involved with the General Assembly, it's actually that um, element, um, the speed dating which you describe, that is really valuable. Um, The speeches are essentially just sort of um, providing some cover for the other diplomatic work. And with that gone, uh, you know, I think the UN does feel diminished. It, it fits with what we've experienced around the UN over the last six months, actually, which is, uh, you know, most UN bodies, such as the Security Council, have got by working remotely. Uh, diplomats, like everyone else, have difficulties with Zoom, but Nonetheless, you know, Security Council members have been able to debate and and vote, um, despite not being yeah. able to meet in person. But do, what, do you know how to say uh, you are on mute in all five official <laughs> UN languages? Uh, <laughs> I think I think that's a real skill. But I mean, what um, uh, you know, what Security Council diplomats are saying um, is that they feel that they can't sort of launch clever little ideas with um, other countries or resolve niggling differences because they just can't get that one-to-one meeting time and they can't get the face time, which is so important to UN diplomacy. So that's a general problem at the UN right now. And in the General Assembly week, it will, um, you know, I think it will be really felt because whatever's happening online, um, people won't be meeting one-to-one uh, for the discussions that really matter. 
You know, one other consequence I foresee and expect from the fact that Unga has gone virtual this year is that, you know, every year there's any number of side events, like high level events, side events that are all around certain thematic issues that are important to a number of countries that are often actually like very important and very substantive and, you know, often sort of advance the betterment of humanity in some substantive way. Um you know, this year, I think there's one on like biodiversity, you know, there's any number of, of issues that there are these like high level events on. And one reason that they have these big high level events at UNGA is because, you know, they know that um, it is a moment that sort of forces lower level diplomats to, you know, summon the political will to craft some sort of agreement on, say, biodiversity, that their heads of state to great fanfare can come to New York and sign and great get, you know, get, get great publicity uh, for. Um, that dynamic is just missing this year. Um, so you don't, you're not seeing as many of these sort of substantive high level events on, on the margins of Anga as you do in years past. And that's something I think is actually one of the, the real big impacts of, of Anga having gone virtual. I think that's true. Although it's worth saying that the, the number of that meetings of that type, at least it feels to me has declined a little bit in the last few years anyway. Uh, and that is in part because uh, you have a U.S. administration that is uh, less engaged with this sort of, you know, grand uh, mm-hmm. public diplomacy in New York. Uh, the Obama administration in its um, final years in office in particular uh, did actually engineer a number of the meetings you're, you're talking about. Like the refugee summit, like the New York Declaration on Refugees, things that are, you know, are, are kind of move the needle in the right direction. Yeah, um, there, was a, there was a couple of summits on improving peacekeeping forces. Uh, you know, the Trump administration hasn't done that. Um, I think early on, going back to 2017, you know, my recollection is that a lot of other countries are also keeping a low profile um, because they, you know, they were worried that, um, you know, Trump could de- derail the entire process. I mean, actually, last year, um, you know, Unger felt a, a bit more vibrant again because uh, Guterres, the Secretary General, sort of insisted that there should be um, an overarching focus on climate change. Um, there were some, you know, there was, there was lots of big speeches and, and events around climate change. Um, you know, that that did sort of, provide some more energy for the meeting, um, despite the fact that the US was not closely involved for obvious reasons. Anyway, this time this time that's not happening. Um, there will be a celebration of the UN's 75th anniversary uh, on Monday the 21st of September. Um, you know, I, I suspect that is not going to go down in the history books as an enormously interesting event. Um, you know, governments are organizing lots of other side events online, um, some of which may be substantively quite interesting, but, you know, it's going to be like any other international Zoom session. You'll have dignitaries moving in for 20 minutes um, and then, you know, switching off again. It, it won't have the same sort of galvanizing effect that sometimes you've seen at the General Assembly in the past. 
Um, and, and I should tease that I will have uh, an episode kind of pegged to that 75th anniversary, uh, which includes, as you said, a, a sort of political declaration that will be uh, that has already been signed by most heads of state and will be sort of officially unveiled and commemorated on uh, Monday. Uh, but there are other sort of more interesting, I think, things having to do with UN 75 being in a moment for reflection on. Um, you know, both multilateralism in general and the UN in particular, and what that means for the future of international cooperation. And I'll just uh, tease that uh, for a, a coming future episode of the podcast. Um, but I, I did want to ask you sort of specifically on, on COVID-19. I mean, is there any potential event or anything on the calendar for UNGA that you think might sort of move the needle in, in the right direction? Uh, in terms of harnessing international cooperation in a more you know, systematic way to you know, better uh, combat the pandemic? Is there any sort of COVID-19 moment that you're expecting? Or are you expecting sort of it to just to be mainstreamed, as they say in the UN, throughout every other event? Well, I think it, it is going to be, by definition, the overarching topic of conversation, um, or at least the overarching topic of zooming um and uh the the president of the general assembly uh has sort of said that the response to covid is you know the the theme of of this meeting um i think you know we've seen Guterres already starting to try and shape the narrative uh, by talking about how uh it's it's essential that there should be a common response uh, to COVID and especially a cooperative approach to um, a vaccine. And I think one theme that you're going to hear running through a lot of speeches, especially from uh, leaders of countries that don't have strong economies and don't have strong health systems, is the need for cooperation on a vaccine and you know a fair global distribution of the vaccine. So that is, um, you know, I think that's going to be uh, a recurrent topic. Now, will that in fact uh, persuade you know, China or Russia or you know other countries that have been racing for a vaccine to, um, you know, give it away to the developing world with no strings attached? I, I rather doubt it, but I think it is important that um, uh, you know Guterres, you know, has laid this out as a. Uh, a fundamental global challenge. And, you know, as he's underlined as well, if you have a vaccine that is not distributed equitably, um, if parts of the world get vaccinated, but others do not, you know, the disease will continue to circulate, potentially evolve and, uh, you know, continue to be very disruptive. Um and I'll, I'll plug uh, some ep recent episodes of the podcast I've done on uh, global cooperative efforts to both uh, develop a vaccine and distribute uh, around the world. I'll post links to those in, in the show notes. But uh, is there any other sort of storyline, any, anything else you'll be watching for in UNGA this year, uh, such as it is? I, I can't really think of a another single overarching narrative uh to be honest um it will be it will be interesting to see to what extent um leaders 
make space in their speeches for climate change, actually. Uh, I mean, clearly, uh, there was a lot of disappointment in the climate community that the that a big climate conference that was being planned for Glasgow this year in the UK had to be postponed because of COVID. There's a lot of concern that whereas, you know, Guterres made a huge push at the 2019 General Assembly to focus top-level attention on, on climate, you know, that that attention has dissipated, that COVID is taking up all the um, mental and political space of leaders. So I think, yeah, I'll be listening to see if people still make time to talk about climate change as a a very real threat, um, especially given some natural disasters in, in the last year. But beyond that, I think that a lot of leaders, and not just Trump, will feel that really they have to focus their speeches uh, for domestic audiences and tailor them for domestic audiences. Because the reality is that, you know, prime ministers and presidents are not going to be sitting at home religiously watching um, every other leader's video. Uh, that's simply not going to happen. You'll you'll have a few benighted diplomats um, whose job it is to track every speech and, and write little summaries. But uh, you know, a, lo- a lot of these um, online presentations, frankly, aren't going to get a lot of play at the UN. However, I suspect that most domestic news channels will play at least clips of um, what national leaders have to say. Um, the, the, you know, uh, news newscasts around the world will be picking up on presidents and prime ministers' speeches, and so actually, you know, speechwriters will be thinking, "Hmm, we really need to write something that will resonate on the nine o'clock news, um, or or on the morning news," and that means that everyone will really be talking to domestic audiences. They'll be telling domestic audiences about how they have managed COVID as well as they can. Uh, there, there may be less of a focus on gaining international resonance than there usually would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, which is bound to make sense. I mean, unlike any other unga that I can remember, you know, virtually every country in the world is in some sort of acute crisis right now. Uh, and so I would imagine, as you said, that most political leaders would want to, you know, use this as an opportunity to you know, uh, assuage their, their domestic and, and, and speak to their domestic audiences in this moment of, of global crisis that has, you know, very local implications. I think maybe coming back to the global level, one other message that you may hear from, uh, you know, the least developed countries, poorer countries, is that, you know, they, they now face enormous economic hardship um, as a result of the COVID uh catastrophe and one one theme i do think we're going to hear a lot about at the un going forward is uh poorer countries saying that they need more aid to recover um more development assistance to recover from the impact of the disease Mm-hmm. And yeah, I should say, just just before our conversation, I was interviewing someone from the World Health Organization, who you know told me that um, since COVID started, they um, have assessed an excess of ten thousand extra child deaths per month from malnutrition caused by COVID and shortages and hikes in food prices. Uh, 
you know, over the first six months of, of this year of, of this COVID crisis. So this is, you know, very, very real and, you know, in the developing world, especially in, in uh, very resource strained places, you know, the, the impact of, of COVID is, you know, profound. Yeah. And the problem is, of course, is that while, um, leaders and I think also UN officials will be saying, well, we need more aid. We need, you know, we need money to cover the costs of, of global recovery, um, both in public health terms, but also in economic terms. Uh, a lot of representatives of donor countries are going to be treading very, very carefully because they will not want to commit to, um, uh, you know, spending that they may struggle to afford depending on the scale of the economic downturn and also will be domestically controversial. Um, so I, uh, you know, I, I think that were everyone together, one narrative that would be emerging around this general assembly is, you know, who is going to pay for the recovery um, phase from COVID. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, that, that debate will be more fragmented and, uh, I think less easy to follow just because of the the virtual format um, and the fact that you know everyone will be speaking to slightly different domestic constituencies. Uh, well, Richard, thank you so much as always. This is great. You know, I think this is like our fifth time uh, previewing Unga for the podcast audience. So, so thank you. Yeah. Um, well, I I only hope that when we do this again in 2021, we'll be talking about the. Uh, the joyful return of um, uh, real-life human uh, presidents and prime ministers to New York. Um, given this, you know, given warnings about how long a vaccine may take, this might actually be the first of two two virtual answers. But uh, hopefully, they will have managed to sort this out by September 2021. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Richard. That was helpful as always. And I'll post a link to his Iran snapback sanctions piece in the show notes of this episode and on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And please do feel free to get in touch with me if there's anything on your mind, if there's someone you want me to interview or a topic you'd like me to cover please do feel free to reach out. You can do so using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I love hearing from you. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks, bye.